it's Jen. Welcome to the At Home with Autism podcast, the podcast that I have sat down to start probably a dozen times. I began recording, I talked for a little while, and then was like, nah, that ain't it. <laughs> nah, that ain't it. Ever heard of analysis to paralysis? Well, I've done that more than once or twice with this. So I'm hoping that this particular session that I'm sitting down to right now in my basement, that uh, that this is the one. And I think it's going to be because I have decided that it is. And I have decided that probably the best way to start this at home with autism podcast is to begin at the beginning and tell you how our journey with autism began or how I believe it began. And uh, we'll just see how it goes. Okay. For those who don't know me, my name is Jen Jordan. I co-host a radio morning show, the Jeff and Jen Morning Show on Q102 in Cincinnati, Ohio. I have a 20-year-old son with autism. His name is Jacob, and he is an absolute rock star. He will join me on this podcast on regular occasions. I thought for this particular one, let's start with the big, the big overall story, the big arching storyline, the, the big umbrella under which all of the podcasts that follow from here will fall under because there are just far too many details in the 20 years that he and I have had together to fit into just one or two or 12 or 100 podcasts because it is an everyday adventure in this house and we like it that way. So to start at the very, very beginning, I think the beginning for us actually began when I was pregnant with Jacob at 15 weeks in a pregnancy that when I was told I was never going to have, I was told that uh, the likelihood of me ever becoming pregnant was very, very slim, that if it ever were to actually happen, it would require a lot of effort on, uh, on our part to get pregnant. And that would include everything you can imagine for a couple that's struggling to conceive. So the mere fact that I found out I was pregnant was a complete and total shock to the system and all things being told I was not in a very good marriage at the time I was trying to figure out how to leave the marriage at the time that I found out that I was pregnant so it was very very stressful on a couple of different levels one I knew it was going to be a very high-risk pregnancy that even if I did get pregnant carrying it full term um, was going to be was going to be tough and there would be a very strong possibility that at some point I would have to go on bed rest and that is exactly what happened at 15 weeks I uh, had to go in for emergency surgery I had an incompetent cervix just not something you want to have and they pretty much hogtied me went in there and sewed that sucker up and put me on bed rest so I laid in bed from 15 weeks until giving birth to Jacob at 37 weeks so it was close to six months that I laid in bed and I laid in bed the entire time pretty much terrified of everything that was happening to me with me terrified I was gonna lose my baby terrified that um, I was gonna have the baby <laughs> terrified that I was uh, going to be in a relationship for a long time that I just wasn't happy in. It was very, very difficult. Those 22 weeks were a complete and total shutdown of my life. I had just started doing a morning show 
literally weeks. I'd been in the position for weeks when I found out I was pregnant and a couple of months before having to go on bed rest. And the people that I worked for were wonderful. They built a studio in my home. I was able to work from home and it was hard. It was really, really hard because I felt very disconnected from the team I was working with because they were in one place and I was at home. And at the time there was very limited communication options uh, to connect with them. Like during quarantine for the past couple of years, we've had ways of talking back and forth and seeing each other's faces. And it wasn't anywhere near as hard as it was back when I was pregnant. I was scared of giving birth. Ter- I mean, terrified. I terrified isn't, doesn't even, I mean, that word doesn't even come close to expressing how I was feeling about the actual birthing process. And I was really so afraid of being a mom because I had very little experience with babies. I'd never changed a diaper before Jacob. I never babysat. I didn't have any younger siblings to take care of. So I, I mean, it wasn't just no experience with babies. It was no experience with children. And I never really had an interest. And I was never one of those kids or young people that was like, oh, a baby. No, I just didn't really. Didn't. <laughs> just, just wasn't my thing. So I was very concerned about my own ability to be a decent mom. Add into the mix that I not yet diagnosed later realizing that I had generalized anxiety disorder and depression were things that I had been dealing with for a long time without realizing what they were because I was so good at taking care of myself leading up to the pregnancy. I did all of the things that you do to remain calm and peaceful and happy. And, uh, I mean, I was... I don't want to say self-medicating. I was self-caring enough that the symptoms of the anxiety and the depression, when they did show up, they were so mild that it didn't really seem like a thing. Well, now I'm on bed rest. I'm completely cut off from my entire world. Friends came around for a little while. Then they stopped coming around. And I was a super social person. I was out all the time. And to be completely, boom, just done laying in bed in a house with someone I didn't get along with, pregnant with a baby that I was terrified I was going to lose. And if I didn't lose it terrified, I was going to keep it because I wouldn't know what to do with it. It was a very beyond stressful time. And for the majority of the pregnancy, I kept thinking about autism. Now this was 2001. And the rates of being diagnosed with autism in 2001, I would have to double check, but I remember it being one in 400 and some, one one in 466. So it wasn't exactly something that was on everybody's radar. I I had two different bosses that had had sons with autism and I kept writing it off like, you know, I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac. I'm a little bit of a worry ward because I know these two dads who have had this show up in their lives, that's just making me a little goofy. Maybe that's the case. Maybe I just knew. And maybe having that knowledge intuitively was keeping me a little extra nervous. I do believe that all of that stress 
in addition to getting a flu shot, getting the RH shot, ending up having to use Pitocin to stimulate labor. And I also believe I was overdosed on Pitocin because at one point I recall a nurse coming in, looking at the other nurse and saying, is this still going? And the other one kind of like deer in the headlights looked at her and said, yeah. And then she like nurse number one shot nurse number two a dirty look and turned it off. Plus I had uh, the epidural. They had to use suction to get him out after me pushing. I only pushed, man, maybe an hour. I was so weak. My body was so atrophied. You know, the muscles were so atrophied and I was just so tired after laying down for six months that I just, I couldn't push any longer. So, I mean, that's a lot of stress on the body. That's a lot of stress on the mind. That's a lot of stuff. I was also in the hospital five different times while I was pregnant. And there were medications I had to take to lower my blood pressure. There was a medication I had to take to stop contractions because I did start having some contractions far too early. So they needed to nip that in the bud. I was in a car accident. And uh, I mean, here's the thing. How could that not affect a baby? (laughs) How could everything that I was going through and everything that I was putting into my body and everything that was going on with me naturally, it has to, it just has to, it just has to. And so I believe Jacob came into this world already predispositioned for stress. You know, and another thing that I think of, I mean, it was so quiet, right? The only noise that he experienced was the noise that was in my headphones when I was on the radio in the morning and any conversations that I had on the phone or with his dad. And there weren't very many of those. Now, it wasn't like I was going out to loud, busy restaurants and I wasn't going to concerts and I wasn't going to bars and I wasn't hanging out with large groups of people. I wasn't going to part. I mean, there was zero social life. So in the womb, he wasn't exposed to a lot of, of noise. And what I remember so very much about bringing him home from the hospital the day that we brought him home. I mean, we literally walked into the house and he was in a car seat and you know, the, the kind that just pop out, they still make those. I'm guessing they do. So he's in this car seat and we set him on the kitchen counter and his dad is a New Yorker and just loud by nature. And he said something and this newborn baby, I'm talking like a day old, his father spoke and he visibly startled. Now, like I said, I didn't know a lot about babies, but I didn't think that a newborn would startle like that. It's weird. It's weird. Once we got him home, he was, I mean, he was different out of the gate. Startled like that all the time. Cried all the time. We had constant ear infections. We had acid reflux. We had, you know, just the screaming and the crying for hours on end, inconsolably. I can remember us driving him around the plot, you know, taking him out, that trick, you know, take him for a ride, that'll put him to sleep. Well, it did maybe one out of five times. And then when we brought him back in the house, he immediately woke up. He did not like being held. I would hold him and he would push me away. Other people could not pick him up. We took him to a birthday party when he was... Birthday party was in May. He's born in September. So eight months old. Take him to a birthday party. We walked in and one of my best friends wanted to hold him and I handed him off to her. her, 
and he immediately started screaming and did not stop for two hours. His dad had to take him and leave the party. He was just, I mean, and it was a different kind of crying. I mean, it was zero to 10 in no time flat. And it was a complete loss of presence. It was like we would just lose it. He just wasn't there anymore. He was so far gone in the screaming. I mean, this is the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown. You'll hear parents of kids with autism talk about this all the time, that it's not a, a tantrum. It's like so overwhelmed by everything that's going on around them that they have to scream so loud to disconnect so that they aren't even a part of what's going on. And Jacob had that going on from the time he was an infant. Tons of, tons and tons of antibiotics for the ear infections. Every time we did get him vaccinated, he had a severe reaction. Uh, the high fever, the inconsolable crying, nothing comforted him. It was either the shots he got at nine months or 12 months. I was whole, I think it was nine. I was holding him in his nursery and he was crying, 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 crying. And at one point he stopped crying. His eyes rolled back into his head. His head fell back and he popped right back up. And then it happened a second time. And then he popped back up and he just went back to screaming. Scared the shit out. I had no idea what had just happened, but he seemed fine after that. So I talked myself into, he's fine. Right. The other thing that was so noticeable when he was a baby, other than the not looking at us and not wanting to be held and <laughs> screaming, um, he would lay on the changing table and his arms and his legs would just go straight and stiff. And he would like turn his wrists and his legs would just kind of, just kind of like shake a little bit. And he would open his mouth really wide and his eyes would get really wide. And he would just make this, this ah! sound is what he sounded like, which of course later... There became the toddler version of that, and then the child version of that, and then the preteen and the teen, and now the 20-year-old version of that exact same move that began when he was a baby. So when he was a year old, we were living in Tampa up until that time. So at a year old, we moved to Cincinnati, and everything continued. Interestingly enough... <laughs> Looking back at all of the developmental milestones that little ones are supposed to make, he, the only one he did on time was standing up and walking. He might've crawled on time, but everything else, he, no, he never, never pointed, never pointed at anything. When we get to Ohio, you know, things were chaos for a bit there, getting moved in, getting settled, getting used to the new job. Kept noticing things. By this point, he was lining up toys. He was doing a lot of repetitive behaviors, turning pages in books, like flipping, but you know, he didn't want to read books. Didn't really want books. There were one or two books he would let us read to him, but that was it. The rest, he would just flip the pages of the books. Never played with, I love this, played with the toy appropriately. Uh, appropriately, what's appropriate? 
I always hated that term. Never felt good with that term. But, you know, never played with toys the way they were intended to be played with. He did did everything pretty much (laughs) in his own way. And that's what continued through toddlerhood. Never babbled. Never really said anything that sounded like a word. Although, looking back, I do think he was communicating just in his own way. But it didn't sound like what we consider to be words. And I knew the entire time. I knew. I noticed every one of these little things along the way. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, he has autism. This is autism. I knew without a doubt at nine months. And I would say things to people close to me. Do you think this is normal? Do you think that what he's doing is something I need to be concerned about? I I think this is going on. What do you think? And everyone, and I do not fault them for this at all, because they were actually telling me exactly what I wanted to hear. And that was, I'm sure he's fine. Ask your pediatrician. At the time, that was exactly what I wanted to hear because I was scared, very, very scared that I was right. And for the first time in my life, I did not want to be right. So I went along with what the pediatricians told me. He's a boy. Boys talk late. They speak late. They develop a little bit slower. There's nothing to worry about. He's a healthy kid. So the day came when he was two and I was in the basement with him and we were playing with this boat. There was this boat and it had balls that went with it. It was a tugboat, I think. And you put the balls in the little hole in the top and you bang them with a little hammer and then they slide down and come out the bottom. Well, he didn't want to hit him with a hammer, but he loved putting the balls in the holes. He was so into this toy that the house could have been burning down around him, and I don't think he would have noticed. He was so zoned in, and he had his mouth wide open, and his eyes wide open, and his hands were flapping, and he'd hit that ball, and he'd go, ah! And I would get in front of him and get my face like really close to his face or at least be in his line of sight. He wouldn't even see me there no matter what I would say, what I would do. I tried so hard to get his attention, to pull his attention away from that toy. And it just wasn't happening. It was ball after ball after ball. And ah! And this went on for, I mean, like an hour this went on. And I tried so many things and each thing I tried, it just became more undeniable and more undeniable and more undeniable that something was going on. I believed it to be autism. And here's the thing. I take it to the doctors and it still took another year and a half before we got a diagnosis. And when we finally did get a diagnosis, it wasn't like, oh, you got a mild case. No, we were full-blown autism, completely nonverbal, no eye contact, no pointing, no connection whatsoever. Set him down on the floor. He takes off running. (laughs) What was always cute about his running is we had moved into a house where there were still some homes being built. So there wasn't a complete sidewalk. So about five or six houses down from us, the sidewalk stopped. So if he did get away from us and took off running, you know, we didn't worry too much about getting too far behind him because when the sidewalk ended... He stopped. (laughs) He didn't know where to go. (laughs) So at three and a half, we have this diagnosis. Very typical story for what would happen then. I don't know what happens 
now. I've, I've been told it's not that much different. Maybe it is. But pretty much we got, you know, the talk that this is the same child that you walked in here with. He's going to need a little extra help. There are some therapies out there that could benefit him. Occupational therapy, speech therapy. There is a therapy called ABA that we endorse and that parents have seen some success with. And they kind of hand us this little informational folder and it's kind of like, okay, good luck. And that was pretty much it. I remember asking questions. Is he ever going to look at us? I don't know. Is he ever going to have friends? I don't know. Is he ever going to be able to go to a typical school? I don't know. Is he ever going to be able to say, I love you? I don't know. Is he ever going to even care that we're in the same room with him? And the answer was, I don't know. So it was a pretty helpless feeling when I walked out of there at that point and really did feel like, all right, well, I guess we put him in these therapies and see what happens. I was not doing well at the time. Nothing was working for me. Marriage was bad for both of us, I'm sure, that he was as miserable <laughs> as I was simply because we are two completely different people that have two completely different ideas about pretty much everything in life. And neither of us were big on compromise. Both of us thought that our way was the best way. And we were not good at communicating with each other at all. So home life was rough. Co-parenting was rough. Parenting solo was rough. And work was really rough. Friendships were really rough. No one understood what I was going through. I mean, how could they? Only people that have gone through this can really understand what it's like. The fear, the frustration, the anger, the feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, the pain, the suffering, the loneliness, just not knowing what the future was going to hold for any of us. And was it ever going to get easier or better? Or was it going to be like this forever? And if it is going to be like this forever, am I equipped to live like that? Will I be able to survive this? So we did occupational therapy, we did speech therapy, we did physical therapy. We had some wonderful young therapists. I'm so grateful for to this day. We did start bringing um, ABA specialists into the home and I was self-medicating heavily with food, sugar, alcohol to an extent, uh, mostly marijuana. Jacob was sleeping three hours a night maybe. Go to bed at 11 o'clock, get up at 2 a.m. Of course, I was the last one to put him to bed and then when he got up at two, I was up with him and then I was leaving for work by 3.30, four o'clock. And I was going into work exhausted, drained, so hard. It was just so hard to concentrate and focus on anything that was going on there. I was basically just struggling to function in all aspects of my life and feeling like a failure in all aspects of my life. When Jacob turned four, I was able to pull it together enough to start asking a lot of questions. Because what I was seeing was a lot of pushing against. He was also in preschool by this time. And there was stuff going on like, 
for circle time at preschool, they would tie him in a chair to get him to sit still, doing the best they knew how to do at the time. And it felt very wrong to me. I would hear him scream and cry with his ABA therapist who was constantly trying to stop him from doing pretty much everything that he wanted to do and to force, manipulate, cajole him into doing what they wanted him to do. Them doing what they'd been taught to do and it feeling incredibly wrong to me. Even sometimes in, you know, in the therapies, there was an attempt to to try to use a naughty chair with him. Oh, well, yeah, that's going to work. Just pushing against, pushing against. And the questions that just kept going through my mind were, well, why does he do that? Why does he struggle to sit still? Why does he want to be up and walking around? Why does he flap his hands? Why doesn't he want to look at me? Why do certain sounds seem to have such a negative effect on him? Why can we walk into a room that seems completely benign, him take two steps in and start screaming, throw himself on the floor and start kicking his feet? What? What is happening? Why can't he get the words out? It sure does look like there's something he wants to say. What is he looking at up there in the corner that he seems to be so excited to see? Why does he line up his toys? Why does he keep turning pages in books? Why is he writing the alphabet and numbers over and over and over again, literally 50 times in one sitting? Why does he keep drawing rainbows and coloring rainbows? Why does he look sick? Why does he have these circles under his eyes? Why does he only want to eat crackers and cheese and macaroni and cheese? Why did he have diarrhea for a year and then turn around and start passing stools as big as his head? Why, 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 why? And I would ask everybody that we were seeing at the time. Nobody had an answer, it seemed, to any of my questions. And I decided that just wasn't acceptable. My curiosity got the best of me. And I decided that I was going to find out. I was going to find somebody that could tell me something. I began with a doctor who wanted to run a bunch of tests. Blood work, urine, still. I don't remember if we did spit and hair, probably. Started with changing his diet. Then came the supplements. Then came the treatments for leaky gut syndrome, for viruses, for bacteria, for parasites, for candida, Lyme. These doctors were telling me all of these different things that were going on in his little body. And they had answers how to fix it. So that's where we started, the physiological. Understanding that the physiological issues were creating some of the behavioral issues. And when I say behavioral issues, I don't mean he's being a bad kid and I want to straighten him out. It means he was exhibiting behaviors that were actually ways that he was trying to take care of himself. For instance, his belly. His belly was hurting him. Had to. When you're passing stools as big as your head, yeah, belly's going to hurt. He would spend hours on a big exercise ball on his belly, just rolling around back and forth and back and forth. So if you're spending hours every day rolling back and forth on your belly on a ball, it's not exactly going to free up a lot of time 
where you could learn to enjoy to be with other people in it because he was too busy taking care of himself. So we took care of the physiological piece first, or started to. That journey has continued and continues to this day. He takes a bunch of supplements to support his immune system and other things that are a little bit sideways. So we support that and we keep him healthy. And I figured out pretty quickly that beyond the physiological, if I really wanted to make peace with this diagnosis, and if I really wanted to help him find peace, because it certainly never looked like he had it. He really seemed like a stressed out, unhappy kid. So I really wanted that peace for the both of us. I realized that the way that I saw him, the way that I saw autism, the way that I was viewing the world as a whole was causing my suffering. And if I was suffering, he was gonna suffer too because what I model, I teach in every minute of every day. So how did I want to see him, the diagnosis, the world, myself? How did I want to see it? I wanted to see it through the lens of love, acceptance, and non-judgment. And I knew that if I woke up every day thinking that this life that I had been given with this amazing child was a gift, My day would be a much different day than if I woke up every day thinking it's a tragedy. So what did I have to do to make that choice every day that we are on this amazing adventure? I've been given this gift, even if it doesn't make any sense exactly how it's a gift. I just know that it is. And someday it'll become clear to me, maybe. And if it doesn't, oh, well, at least I'm getting to be curious and have an adventure. But what do I need to think? What do I need to be? What do I need to believe? How do I need to act? What do I need to say? How do I need to feel? That's when my questions started getting really interesting and really good. And that's when the real adventure began. So we'll talk about that sometime. (laughs) It's a gift. It's a gift. It really is. Talk to you soon, okay? Thanks for joining me. Jacob will join soon. (laughs) This is the At Home with Autism podcast.